everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you the next episode in our Digital Assets sub-series of SALT Talks. Uh, and our guest today is Dante Desparte, uh, who is the Executive Vice President of the DM Association, which is the association affiliated with Facebook, norm, uh, formerly known as the Libra Association. But Dante has two decades of experience as an entrepreneur, a business leader, and a global risk expert, most recently as the founder and head of Risk Cooperative, which I think your background lends itself to a very interesting conversation about risk, underwriting, insurance, and custody, all the important things that we're dealing with as uh, the crypto or the digital assets world continues to mature. Dante also serves as an appointee on the Federal Emergency Management Agency, aka FEMA, National Advisory Council, the U.S. Federal Emergency Response Agency uh, that responds to natural uh, disasters and humanitarian disasters. Uh, he's a founding advisor of the Global Blockchain Business Council and a senior fellow with the Blockchain Trust Accelerator. Dante is a graduate of Harvard Business School and holds a master's in risk management from NYU's Stern School of Business and a BA in international and intercultural studies from Goucher College. Did I pronounce that correctly, Dante? Goucher College. Goucher. <laughs> I went French on you. Uh, he's the co-author of Global Risk Agility and Decision Making, uh, which was published by Macmillan in 2016 and was recognized as one of the 40 leaders under 40 by Washington Business Journal and the inaugural Power Meter 100 list. Hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, our resident uh, Bitcoin bull and digital assets enthusiast at Skybridge, not to say that we're all not enthusiastic about our involvement uh, in the digital asset space, but Brett is the president and chief operating officer of Skybridge. Uh, he's going to conduct the majority of today's interview, and without any further ado, I'm going to kick it to Brett. Well, thank you, John and Dante. Thanks for joining us. This is uh, an exciting time. It's back an exciting week, right? I mean, everything's digitized now, so the idea of digital currencies, I think, makes more and more sense. And, and you know, just this week, right, we had Tesla buy 1.5 billion dollars of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, Bank of New York, uh, Mellon today announced they're getting into the custody business for digital assets. And MasterCard right, said that they're going to accept cryptocurrencies for their merchant payments by the end of the year. So, so the timing couldn't be better. Um, I think what would be helpful for the audience and for me, for that matter, would be if you can just give us sort of a short narrative of the launch of the, the predecessor initiative, Libra. Um, you guys ran into a few roadblocks. You know, you rebooted, which we've done at Skybridge a few times, so we have nothing but respect for. Um, and where we are now, and I, I think that that will foster a good discussion. But I think that's an important baseline for all of us. Great. Well, well, thank you, Brett, and and thank you, John, and and very happy to be on with uh, with Skybridge. I'm a fan of the Salt Talks, and so it's good to be on this side of the screen with you. Um, well, so look, as you said, I think at the opening act, and if anything, 2020 is is really a powerful reminder of how critical technology has been for any semblance of normalcy across the spectrum from something as mundane that we should never take for granted as, as getting an education now being carried out at scale, 
uh, through platforms like Zoom and other online learning platforms to the reliance of um, the internet for a whole array of things for business, household, market, um, and, and operating continuity. Then you ask yourself the very hard question of, well, where, where have we failed to appreciate the full opportunities and full value of digital transformation? And the exchange of value and the digital assets case study has been made in so many ways in 2020. And at the same time, it also corresponds, I think, with a wave of serious institutional adoption, um, driven in no small measure, as you pointed out at the outset, uh, of, of Bitcoin's appreciation as a crypto asset, um, the adoption uh, and entry of a number of players um, into the digital payment space. So in so many ways, you know, the case study for crypto assets, the case study for fintech and digitization has been made. And I think that call to action has also been heard. Along the way, uh, the now rebranded DM project, once upon a time known as Libra, I think our mission statement and our vision statement remains very much the same, but also very focused on three things, the three pillars I think that drive the project, inclusion, innovation, and integrity, right? That pulling more people into basic payments and providing for folks with nothing more than an inter internet connected mobile device, a compliant payment endpoint, and then spurring a wave of financial innovation that's responsible, that's inclusive, and that uh, unlocks the opportunities of, of so-called programmable money at scale is a, is a great opportunity. And the third piece of, the, of this uh, puzzle or the third pillar is to do so in a manner that doesn't erode confidence nor integrity in the financial system. So that's part of what the refocused DM project is all about, is to ensure that those three pillars, the innovation, inclusion, and integrity uh, work together hand in hand as we build the, uh, as we build the project. Well, that's great. Well, in if, if you don't mind me putting it this way, in version 1.0, it was going to be a basket of currencies, right? And 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 I think, right, if if I recalled uh, properly, that got some resistance because there were right various regulators didn't like the idea of a private company determining the various weightings. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, about sort of that chapter? I'm sure you know. I know we're all moving forward, but I do think it's important to understand what happened then to understand where you are now and candidly yeah. why I think you're gonna be successful now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what we first have to understand and you, you really hit on a really important but nuanced point, Brett, which is that the vast amount of money in circulation in an economy flows through the two-tier banking system. So in effect, most money you could argue is privately issued it just shows up to those of us who were born in the right postal codes or in the right uh, countries and we have access almost as a birthright to low cost or inclusive financial services, that it shows up in the ways we understand it as lending and credit and so forth through a two-tiered banking system, right? So in effect, money that has value added opportunities to it has a private sector engagement around it, whether it's private banks, commercial bank money, credit card companies, and so on. Now, what, what the advent of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain-based payment systems introduce is another way of introducing payments optionality that I think goes further than we have historically in completing the financial system and providing more basic access. So power, the power of peer-to-peer -peer payments, the type of accounting fidelity that blockchain-based systems allow for, I think is a, is a big, powerful opportunity. 
Version 1.0 in established in the, the then Libra white paper described concepts that actually aren't that new, right? The, the concept of a multi-currency uh, then Libra coin borrowed very heavily from the special drawing rights at the IMF or the World Bank, which is a composite weighted um, basket of currencies that countries could draw upon, um, you know, in the event they needed to draw upon that, uh, that facility in an emergency or an economic crisis. And so a lot of what was designed in that original concept uh, very much remains true today, which is that, you know, our goal is to introduce a payment instrument where people don't have buyers or spenders remorse, uh, which frankly, I think we know very well in this type of group um, has plagued historically uh, many of the cryptocurrency markets that have tried to introduce payment instruments. There's been a lot of volatility in those instruments. So the concept of a basket was to reduce volatility and increase the utility in different countries around the world. What we have today is a proposition based on a single currency stablecoin structure um, where, you know, every DM coin in circulation would be backed one to one uh, with the assets that reference it. Uh, high quality liquid assets uh, with a mandate to guard against downside risk and to really preserve the price stability and, and combat any type of volatility in that asset. So it's through and through a payment instrument, um, building a really important bridge between the virtual world and the Internet ready world and the real one as a, as a spending mechanism. So, so in, in essence, there would be a digital dollar, right? A DM dollar, a digital euro, a digital yen. Is that and a hundred percent backed? Is that is that that's what version two point is? Yeah. So very much version two point If if you you know you call it that, but the version two the upgrade is really a model born in no small measure from the series of conversations we've had around the world. As you can imagine, so much of my work since uh, this project was originally announced in June of 2019, and our colleagues, uh, we have been on nothing short of a learning journey. Um, with stakeholders around the world, international interest and, and uh, you know, the Financial Stability Board has convened a number of discussions about the responsible ways of deploying blockchain-based payment systems for cross-border payments and remittances. And a lot of that feedback has, has informed our design. So as you saw the evolution of the project, we had the first white paper from June, and then we had an updated white paper in April of last year that described key changes. One of those changes was the introduction of single currency stablecoins, in effect designed to, to preserve public sector oversight and public sector sovereignty over monetary policy, but to introduce effectively a, a very stable payment instrument uh, that was digitally native. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where we are today. Now, to bridge that, what does that look like five years from today? Well, we live in a world where 80 percent of the central banks are thinking about central bank digital currencies. And so we think this is a network that supports public sector upgrade, upgradeability to the extent a central bank begins to um, take that, that digital transformation journey seriously. We think our core technology and, and many aspects of the network supports uh, public upgradeability uh, in the future. So, you know, as John mentioned, you know, we're Bitcoiners, we're, we're committed Bitcoiners. And recently, um, there's been a there's been a controversy around Tether, and, and the controversy has been sort of twofold. One is are Tethers backed, and then is Tether used to manipulate? And and you know we think it's nonsense, and and the facts will suggest that, meaning the manipulation of Bitcoin. Um, but I think there's a crisis of confidence in Tether. Um, is there a path for uh, for you to have a stable coin that will sort of step into the breach and in addition to the things you're looking to do, operate and 
sort of provide it be a tool for you know arbitraging markets across the sort of cryptocurrency ecosystem look it, that's a it's a it's a great question what we're designing for is from the ground up designed for retail use right if you think about um, the the case of remittances as just one example it's historically been a 700 billion dollar uh, global cash flow it's amongst the most important and historically also amongst the most recession resistant cash flows. And you could imagine exactly how it works. Diaspora populations around the world send money across remittance corridors to their families and loved ones in their home countries. That cash flow in 2020 had $200 billion of it um, eradicated by the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what we're trying to design for is a payment system both at the blockchain level, but also at the stablecoin level, that would introduce a lower friction, high security, high trust, highly compliant method in which those types of transactions can be executed, right? So the UN has a goal of dropping remittance costs in the sustainable development goals from 7% to 3%. But the case is gonna be hard to, it's gonna be very hard for us as a world to succeed short of large scale digital transformation. So the use case we're really designing for, peer-to-peer -peer payments, retail payments. As a line extension of that, the whole opportunity of programmable money is the ability then to then over time, be able to execute a microtransaction that um, where by today's standards, it often costs more to send a very small amount of money than the sum of money being sent. So we think over time on a network like this one, there's a whole host of use cases that you could then support on the periphery of it. Um, aspects of how this would then link to other markets and other crypto assets and digital assets, that would be maybe a secondary opportunity, not one we're pursuing directly today. And certainly the regulatory plan we have in place is one to build around consumer protection, retail payments, and, and supporting uh, those peer-to-peer -peer use cases that I described. Well, I have a, from a prior life, I actually have a, a sort of a fair amount of personal engagement with remittances. Um, I was deputy mayor of Los Angeles, and there are there are three third rails of politics in LA. One is you don't mess with billboards. Two is you don't mess with food <laughs> trucks. And the third one is you do everything to protect remittances and to help bring down those costs. And there are a lot of ordinances that, that are sort of city, you know, as you know, it's, a, it, it's, hard, to, it's hard to regulate that at, at the city level, but LA does as much as it can. So I, I think what you could do on remittances is amazing. So when can we do it? Well, that's what, what have to was, this conversation to sort of implementation, right? Because yeah. Um, well, you, you hit on uh, Brett. You hit on sort of the the human element of this, right? That that behind the scenes, what we often abstract away in in a lot of these conversations is is the fact that there are real people being affected by by this model. Personally, I'm from the island of Puerto Rico, and and even though both ends of the transaction are functionally a part of the U.S. financial system. Uh, sending money to my family on the island using the traditional banking rails subjects me to high fees and a, a slow outcome in terms of settlement times. Like how long does it take for the money to arrive? Um, and so, you know, we live in a system today is exactly as you pointed out from your experiences in Los Angeles that exacts the heaviest price on the people who could pay it the least, mm -hmm. right? And then you add in the effects of, of all of this is transpiring in a public health crisis where the conveyance of value using analog methods is slow, using expensive methods, extracts rents from folks that can barely afford it, 
And then lastly, in a public health crisis where you're calling for social distancing and quarantine, subjecting people to a physical remittance pickup location or sending location uh, possibly is a conveyor of, of disease. And so in a world in which you have to be remote as much as possible, the lack and the void of, of you know, population scale, digitally native ways of transferring value is a massive vulnerability. And, and you know, people are people are on the margins of that. Now, our hope and our game plan, of course, is that in order to launch this network, we really need to get three things right. And they're the same three things I would have described back in 2019. We need to get the operation right, the technology right, and the regulation right. And so we're really trying to promote a model that, that provides for consumer protection, regulatory clarity from the wallet and the end user up. Um, and remember, the DM network is being designed as a network that would support payments through virtual asset service providers and digital wallet providers. We've also built on an open uh, technology standard effectively to spur competition and to spur more open innovation on the network over time. Um, so we're eyeing getting those three, those three levels of readiness right as a precondition of activating the system. So I was gonna ask you about the digital wallet piece because that seems to be the critical piece here. Um, well, not to say the other two are not, right? But that's the, um, is there any way, you know, is Facebook rolling out digital wallets or working on that? You know, I assume you guys aren't just waiting back for the private sector to respond to this initiative. Is there, is there anything you can tell us about, about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, well, that's a, it's, a, it's also a great question, Brett. The, the project, as you know, is a member-based project, right? So the DM Association has um, 27 member organizations in the project that straddle different sectors and different industries. Some are social impact organizations like Kiva, Women's World Banking, Mercy Corps, and Heifer International, many of whom are real pioneers in the financial inclusion world and are working in, in complex emerging and developing uh, areas to, to drive financial inclusion in the last mile scenarios. Others are digitally native platforms. Um, Facebook has established a separate um, financial entity called Novi, which is building a wallet on this network. And there are also other uh, prospective wallet providers and others who would be dealing with, you know, the, the market and retail facing aspects of this project. But beyond that, I think an important piece of this network, which is critical, and, and often I think the likening the DM network to digital commons is, is a, an interesting way of thinking of it, because you don't have to be a member of the project to build a regulated VASP or on-ramp into this network, right? So prospectively over time, the more and more you see uh, digitally native financial services providers or traditional banks entering this market, the more they could also leverage this network uh, and build without having to be a member of the DM association. So that, that's one of those subtler aspects of this project that we think spurs a lot of competition, uh, optionality and choice in the future. And what are your thoughts on what, you know, we're seeing some of the incumbents do, uh, right? Um, MasterCard this week, right, has said that they're gonna take payments in crypto. Um, Visa has a couple of sort of, I think, very forward-leaning initiatives. All this seems to be converging in the same place. Um, do you see that as being competitive or is it, a, is it compatible with what you're doing? Does it, uh, I guess I would just appreciate yeah. your thoughts on that because it's fascinating. No, it, first of all, first of all, I think I'm anybody who knows me or has heard me speak on these issues in the past would, would appreciate that I'm a all ships rising uh, person. And I believe, you know, the sector 
has uh, really entered this sort of moment in time where this institutional adoption was going to show up as many had predicted, but, but that even still, even in a world in which we have a lot of institutional adoption and a lot of big established financial services firms are taking the opportunity that the, the cryptocurrency and blockchain movement has uh, advocated for a long time, I think the sandbox is big enough for all of us to coexist and in the future to also coexist with the advent of potential future central bank digital currencies. And the reason why I take that opinion is that we live in a world with 1.7 billion people without access to the formal banking system. Nearly an equal number are underbanked or on the financial margins. You just spoke about what that looks like, for example, from your uh, mayoral experiences. And in that world, I think both healthy competition, healthy optionality, and a lot of entry is a, is a very, very good thing uh, in, the, in the end. And also, we have to remember that where we think the DM project is very distinct is about trying to figure out how to pull, extend the perimeter of the world's payment systems to include more people without sacrificing financial compliance rules and other rules of, about financial integrity. So merely digitizing existing banking rails doesn't solve the other big problem of financial inclusion that we've been uh, talking about. So can you just explain on a fundamental level how, let's say, a consumer, me, would interact with with um, with the project um, yeah. at some point in the future. Like, what what will it mean for me? How how will I be engaging with it? You know, I send money to people in different places for a variety of reasons. Um, so, yeah. So, look, I, I've long maintained a couple of big things. Right. First, when we stop talking about blockchain and it fades to the deep background, we could start changing the world with it. So, I do think we're still in this initial phase where a lot of the hardware and software and all the moving parts need to be described for people. But as a consumer in the future, when, when this network is activated and how you would interact with, with uh, these types of payment systems is that you would have a wallet provider in your country or in the market that you're operating in. Presumably it's an operator that you trust. And, and of course, as a precondition for being onboarded onto the network, they would be abiding by uh, requisite rules and regulations in the jurisdiction or the country or the state in which you're operating, right? So, so there's throughout a presumption of trust being built into this network from start to finish. You would open up an account with that, um, with that uh, operator, that virtual uh, asset provider or digital wallet provider or your bank by extension, uh, open up an account with them. And then all of a sudden, one of the core design features of the DM blockchain is the ability to pay each other across providers, right? So we've built a model that breaks down the traditional walled gardens that plague many payment systems, even highly efficient payment systems. The second you try to draw or, or send a payment across platforms, you then introduce the fact that those payment networks are not interoperable at the technological level. So as an end user who has an account with one of the wallet providers on the network, you're suddenly empowered to pay across platforms and across providers um, by a design. I mean, that's that's one of the key features of the DM blockchain. Um, and I think that would look not dissimilar to what it looks like today to open up a, a digital wallet or any other uh, digital financial service that, that you have today. The distinction being that kind of core level of interoperability I think is a is a big difference maker. Can I say it back to you? So sure. I'm not stuck in the Venmo ecosystem or the Cash App, right? Where you know someone's like, "Well, I'm on Cash. I'm 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 only on Venmo, right?" 
we're solving for that. Is, is, is that part of the value proposition here? Well, part of it is indeed the question of uh, interoperability across payments, right? So as a user of one bank account to send money to another person's bank account, that lack of interoperability at the technological level is one of the issues that we're trying to solve for. Um, the other issue is, is optionality, right? It's the question of, you know, I, I wanna have a digitally native payment system that could work across borders and across regions is another major distinction so that, you know, to lower the cost of remittances, you have to build a platform that allows for competitions across, competition to exist and providers to exist um, in the cross-border setting as well, right? So that's another one of the distinctions, but you, you hit the nail on the head that in many of today's payment systems, even very efficient ones, they haven't been designed um, either from the technological level or through, you know, just basic operating parameters to support payments across platforms. That's that's a key distinction. We think the DM infrastructure allows for a lot more interoperability um, and stability because of uh, of that design. And what has the regulatory reaction been um, to? And I, I'm sorry, I, I call 2.0 just because I think you know 2.0s do better. <laughs> I'm happy to yeah, you know, I can stop doing that. It's we call it DM the improvement. Yeah. <laughs> so so look, I, I mean, first of all. We have taken a posture of getting the regulatory regime is a precondition of launching the network, right? And so, you know, today uh, that work is ongoing. Um, as you can imagine, throughout the course of, of the journey for the last year and a half, it's been a series of conversations and also partly animated by um, the pandemic and, and partly animated by the speed with which societies and people are shifting away from physical cash and traditional forms of banking and finance to digitally native forms. The rise to prominence of Bitcoin is emblematic of that transition. Anyhow, you have entire um, countries and central banks, the Swedish central bank have really been eyes wide open about what is happening in the market in Sweden. And, um, and I think that sort of recognition is coming increasingly uh, across a, a range of central banks around the world are really considering what does a cashless future look like but how do you preserve public sector oversight over monetary economic policy and, and the rules and regulations in a market? What we've espoused is a model in which we are, are really pursuing technology neutral, activity-based regulation of the payment system. Same risk, same rules. I think that's a consistent posture on both sides of the Atlantic and in the various jurisdictions where we have been engaged. And we wanna see that, that held true here. And in the last updated, updated white paper, we described this model where we would also have a financial integrity function um, that helps promote financial crimes compliance and combat money laundering and financing of terrorism and other sort of like-for-like activities that you would expect of, of a well-run payment system. So we're really trying to build to a very high standard around compliance and consumer protection because um, at the end of the day, it's a payment system. It's meant to empower people. It shouldn't imperil people nor imperil the, the financial system or the rules that govern it. Um, and where do you think the U.S. is on this, right? Because you know Europe's talking about a, a, a digital uh, euro, but four years. I mean, you know, that's a long time. Plus, things don't usually get done on time. I think Powell said, you know, we we got to get this right, which seemed to me suggests that it's going to take us longer than. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, look, each country and each region has and will continue to approach 
the advent of fintech, cryptocurrencies, blockchain-based payment systems, and the related partners, sponsors, and constituents that operate in those networks, each region of the world has confronted that market distinctly. We, we also are all a part of a, a wave that is maybe 11 years old. Um, and so like any novel sector, I think there's typically a degree of temerity and perhaps apprehension at first. And then we start to figure out how to responsibly harness innovation. And then we start to figure out how to really unleash it. And I think we're at that latter phase now that we're really starting to figure out um, and I use the royal we, obviously, but we're starting to figure out from a public policy point of view and a regulatory point of view, how to have appropriate protections in place without killing innovation. And I would advocate that, that we're entering a wave of a vigorously competitive private sector with appropriate guardrails. And we should also look at ourselves in the mirror candidly as fintech promoters and long Bitcoin and long fintech and say, we've had a checkered scorecard over the last 11 years in terms of consumer protection outcomes, adherence to compliance requirements, and a lot of failures on what I would characterize 101 risk management oversights, right? The case of Quadriga CX in Canada is teachable. Uh, 140,000 Canadians uh, effectively lost all their assets uh, due to what was ostensibly a, a pretty preventable event. Um, there have been rampant cases of fraud and all kinds of other issues in the sector. And so we need to also appreciate that apprehension and public pushback isn't born in a vacuum. And there have been a lot of uh, uh, examples where we have to get that balancing act right from private sector vigorous competition to uh, public sector oversight and what is construed as pushback. We've actually been very welcoming of those, uh, those responsible uh, principled conversations. I think we're making progress. My working theory is we need people in senior positions who are younger than 74 years old, and that, that might help, but uh, uh, I don't think we're gonna get that anytime soon, so I'm, I'm not gonna hold off on that. So um, last week at the MicroStrategy Bitcoin con conference, Ross Stevens gave a great, um, I, I recommend anyone, anyone go and find it on the internet and watch it sort of, you know, an hour long tutorial on Bitcoin, why he's bullish. But one thing he discussed, which I had read about previously, but I wanna get your take on, is what Strike is doing using the, the Lightning Network. Cause I think they're they're looking to use the blockchain and Bitcoin, I think in a slightly different way or maybe not, but the way it was described to me is that someone living in Los Angeles could go on the, the Strike Network, their dollar would get converted to Bitcoin. The Bitcoin would get technical term zap to Mexico, right? And then strike would convert it into a peso and drop it into from the, you know, a Bitcoin to um, peso conversion and it's in their bank and you could send it basically $5 costlessly, right? So, um, A, do you think they can do that? And, uh, you know, what does that mean for, you know, what you're doing? Yeah, listen, I think I think there's just so much incredibly fascinating innovation happening um, around this space. And, you know, back in 2018, I wrote an article for Forbes describing the fact that blockchain was coming out of beta. Now, I think what we're seeing is the the real the bridge between real world and virtual world use cases also starting to enter this kind of rapid experimentation phase. I believe in all of the models that are being pursued, they all should be pursued and they should, they should be pursued responsibly. And, and broadly speaking, regulators and other, other public sector stakeholders should encourage that. 
Um, do I perceive it as uh, bad for what Diem is trying to achieve? Not at all. I think, again, the, the social dilemma and the social problem of uh, so many people on the margins of very basic minimum human right level access to the financial system requires, I think, a, a, an attack vector from multiple sides um, to solve for that. And so I think there's some encouraging work being done uh, in bridging Bitcoin as a payment instrument and Bitcoin as um, you know an asset to hold and, or a version of digital gold. I think the history, however, of just the pure economics of an asset that has fundamental scarcity with 21 million Bitcoin ever to be entered into circulation and so on, is that the economic component of it doesn't lend itself well to becoming a payment instrument, but rather a, a great store of value now, including on, on institutional balance sheets. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I'm not educated enough on how the Lightning Network might have utility. Um, but I, I agree, you know, we're hodlers, you know, most of the people that are investing in our fund, I think are hodlers, right? So we're taking Bitcoin out of circulation. Right? Well, you don't want to suffer buyers and spenders remorse, right? And I think there've been enough cases of buyers and spenders remorse over the years or lost keys and some of these sort of uh, native risk management challenges that, that are, would be true of, of Bitcoin's rise to prominence, but would be true more generally of crypto assets. Um, but the work, again, by extension of it and the, the core principles of self-sovereignty and, and, and user control and democratization are incredibly powerful uh, first principles. For sure. John, you want to you have some questions uh, from. Uh... Yeah, I was just you know one of those cases that you were talking about. Somebody bought a pizza with Bitcoin. What was it in, in the early 2010s? And I hate to think what that pizza is worth now. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it tasted good. But uh, one thing, I've watched a lot of your interviews in preparation for this, Andrews, because I think uh, you have a very interesting perspective on all this coming from a insurance underwriting risk management background. But you also talk a lot about how DM could be part of the process of creating a digital identity uh, for sort of the world's unbanked and undocumented and what that could also mean in a world uh, where, you know, post-pandemic world where we're trying to create uh, health identities in a digital setting mm. uh, for individuals. But how do you think DM could be part of a bigger revolution around the world uh, where we could create these digital identities? And what would be the benefit of creating that digital identity for especially those that are underserved around the world? Yeah, no. So so you asked really a great question, John, and, and no question we have a very deep and very sort of close interest in, in the digital identity opportunity, because not unlike what we've been describing so far around, you know, the challenges with unbanked populations and underbanked populations, the first foothold into the formal economy is to satisfy what is known as a know your customer requirement, right? It's an imposition on financial operators broadly uh, to en enable to you know, identify an end user and weed out bad actors from a financial system. Now, in order to cross that threshold, this question of satisfying um, KYC hinges on a couple of things, right? One is to be able to identify yourself, but that's difficult in a world where more than a billion people don't have access to a government-issued ID, let alone one that's portable to them or recognizable uh, by many actors in the financial system. So that's a challenge set for which I think blockchain has some native advantages, right? The fact that a record is irrevocable, the fact that you could always have this audit trail back, um, and effectively there's some opportunities using biometrics and things like that that could sort of start to link creating an identity proxy. 
The other very powerful aspect of blockchains is this concept of authentication and permissioning, right? That I, as the end user, or I, as the owner of a wallet or a digital identity can permission in or permission out people who want to validate who I am. And I think there's a very, very powerful opportunity there. So what we're doing is we want to stay very close to the conversation. Um, some of our members like Kiva have been doing some very interesting work in emerging and developing countries with blockchain and digital identity and biometrics. So we think there's some near peer opportunities uh, for the DM network to partner with its members and others around this space. But we also think critically, if you could serve people economically and make it economically viable to serve people in the so-called base of the pyramid, um, then models like EKYC and stepladder approaches to pulling people into transactions that become more and more and more formalized, the higher the value of the transaction they wanna send, then there's a great way of pulling people out from the shadows. I maintain that a world with so many people operating in informal banking and on the margins is a very risky world that introduces a lot of uh, problems, migration, human trafficking, drug trafficking, et cetera. And so the more you have digitally native networks that are safe, that can authenticate people and also carry out transactions at scale, you start to pull more people um, effectively into the formal economy and out of the shadows. So digital yeah, identity we, is a core opportunity uh, we yeah, see. We find it fascinating. You know, we came into the space, we have a sort of a traditional client base, people that are sort of crypto curious and we are uh, <laughs> in some ways educating people about crypto. And, and one of the, the common questions that we get is about um, you know nefarious activity because you see headlines from people like Christine Lagarde and others who say that um, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular is used for criminal activity, money laundering, things of that nature. But actually, the share uh, you know, percentage of Bitcoin that's used for any type of nefarious activity is plummeting, uh, while at the same time, you know, dollars and, and traditional currencies are sort of the currency of choice for people that are looking to. Uh, commit crimes and, and other nefarious activities. But um, I want to go back to the structure and governance model of the DM Association. You touched on this a little bit before, but this is a you know decentralized group of companies across different sectors. Um, the Bitcoin network is powered by you know, a true organic uh, meritocratic mining process that incentivizes people to want to plug into the network and verify transactions. What's the incentive structure that's created within the DM network that that is going to cause people to want to engage on these rails as opposed to other rails that exist? That's a, it's a great question. And, and obviously, apples and oranges, right? Just to be absolutely clear that, you know, that what has evolved around Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain is a very, very distinct, both from the economic, technological, and sort of original design principles approach than what we're trying to build. And so I think the, the, the comparison maybe stops there. Um, the one example being, you know, the concept of a bounty, if you discover a Bitcoin and you mine it, that there's an incentive to do that. Um, so, so the whole incentive structure is really designed for that, that completely distributed network. And it has evolved into an asset that you preserve rather than use for um, spending. Right. What we're building in part because it, it really relies on having uh, a strong approach to financial crimes compliance and to having had no transactional legacy in the past, right? So de novo, standing up a blockchain, standing up a stable coin that is designed for payments, where from the first 
DM coin in circulation, uh, you really have very strong assurances around financial crimes compliance and, and uh, you know, the approach that we've been describing thus far, consumer protections and so on. Um, getting the license is a precondition of the launch and a lot of the design principles are designed to preserve and protect uh, a network being used for payments that is digitally native and that supports people. Um, and in that vein, the, the design choice around the blockchain and the governance model is also, I think, similarly built, right? So in the second white paper, we describe the function of having effectively a known set of node operators on the blockchain, what would traditionally be described as a permissioned blockchain. That's a design function effectively to one, understand the perimeter, be able to conduct KYB, know your business and know your counterparty and put up a perimeter around the blockchain, but while at the same time, maintaining a process of renewing through the membership, um, the, the governance and renewing the operations of that blockchain. Because we're not using algorithmically intensive approaches like mining, searching for Bitcoins, and there's no bounty for discovering a DM coin, um, that's a sufficient model to support transaction throughput, cybersecurity, and other requirements of this network. And the other point I would say is that DM coin enters circulation based on market factors and it exits circulation based on market factors. So as people demand and end users demand DM coins, then DM coins are minted. Similarly, if the circulation shrinks because of market forces, then the reserve corresponding to that would also shrink and the circulation would shrink. Um, so there's no mining as it were in the same way, which doesn't necessitate uh, nearly as wide of a network as, as you would see with some other uh, digital currencies. And then the governance model very quickly and simply is, look, member-driven organization, the members contribute to the technological roadmap as an open source technology standard. The members contribute to aspects of the governance presented to them uh, with members of our council. And then they each have a vote uh, that is proportional. One member, one vote is the, is the operating model today. And, and so over time, this becomes more of an infrastructure and technological infrastructure organization um, than um, something we think that will be much less controversial in the future, frankly. All right. I would close the interview by asking you that million DM question about when uh, <laughs> DM is going to get rolled out, but I know you're going to give a non-answer, so I'm not even going to do it. But, uh, you know, I wish I could give you a better answer than the non-answer, but the, the point is when, and when we can sort of really map out the wallet environment, the regulatory environment, and the other aspects that we discussed in today's call, we'd rather get it right than get it fast. I think that's yeah. the, the simplest way to put it. Yep. So it's really just about uh, regulatory comfort and approval is really the only thing holding you back at this point. Um, well, look, we, we've announced a lot of progress, right? Over the last uh, six months or so, the formation of an executive team, you know, we have really uh, brought in quite a lot of world-class leaders to the project ongoing progress with our Swiss uh, counterparts who are supporting the, the network and the review with a regulatory college. And then there's a lot of dialogue. I mean, I think as Brett hit on in his questions earlier, there's an emerging posture in Europe and emerging posture in different jurisdictions around the world. So we have to be on the receiving end of aligning to those standards as a, as a precondition for launching this network. Makes sense. All right, Brett, do you have anything before we let Dante go? No, this has been great. You know, I, I think it's, you know, it's fantastic what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, I think it's good for Bitcoin because the more wallets, the more easier is for people to, you know, hold and, you know, buy Bitcoin. So, you know. We long have Bitcoin, Bitcoin long DM. <laughs> and, and, and certainly long Skybridge. There you go. Yes. Now we're talking.
Yeah, but there's a lot of uh, railroad tracks being laid, digital railroad tracks being laid that are going to allow yeah, sort of the, the GDP of the internet and the GDP of uh, you know, digital commerce to to grow. And so, uh, you know, again, it's a pleasure to have you on. Hopefully we can have you at one of our live events once uh, once that becomes feasible. And maybe we can use sort of a digital identity application that was pioneered by DM, maybe with the help of someone like Clear uh, to ensure that everyone who attends our conference has been vaccinated uh, or is, is free of the virus. So that's, that's a world we can dream of. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you, John. Thanks, Brett. Great, beyond, great thank to be you, on. Dante. Good luck. Thanks, guys. We'll be watching. Thank you. And thank you, everybody who tuned into today's Salt Talk with Dante Desparte uh, of the DM Project, formerly the Libra Project, affiliated with uh, Facebook, building a new blockchain uh, to create the digital identity that we spoke about uh, during the talk. Fascinating conversation about the future of blockchains. A lot of our digital asset series focuses on Bitcoin, but it was a uh, interesting to dive deeper in other things that are going on uh, in the decentralized finance movement. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can always watch them on demand or sign up for all future talks on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks, or you can watch all of our episodes for free, uh, readily accessible on our YouTube channel, which is called SaltTube. Uh, we've seen our subscribership grow basically from zero to 60, uh, proverbially during the pandemic. So it's been exciting to see the digital elements of SALT uh, grow during this time. We've sort of uh, tried to find a silver lining in the fact that we're all sitting here at home on Zoom. Uh, please follow us, on, uh, follow us on other social media outlets as well. We're on Twitter, which is where we're most active, but we're also on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And please spread the word about SALT Talks. We love educating people about a variety of different topics, including digital assets, which obviously have been in the news a lot recently, given the price rally that we've seen uh, in Bitcoin and other digital currencies. So please spread the word about Salt Talks. And on behalf of the entire Salt team and Brett, who uh, graciously joined us today as a host, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here again soon on Salt Talks.